Dr. Edward Pritchard insisted that his wife's coffin lid be opened so he could kiss her goodbye one last time. As he leaned over his beloved, he cried. What could have been seen as a loving gesture of a grieving man came to be known as something much more sinister. You see, according to legend, crocodiles cry while eating their prey. And Dr. Edward Pritchard wasn't just crying over his departed wife's body. He was shedding crocodile tears over his murder victim. Hi, I'm Taylor, and uh, welcome to Square Mile of Murder. I'm Kat, and this week we're telling you the story of Dr. Edward Pritchard, the human crocodile, and the third case from Glasgow's Square Mile of Murder. I totally didn't know that about crocodiles crying, so... Yeah, like I've always heard sighting. Yeah, like I've always heard the phrase crocodile tears, but yeah. never knew where it came from. So, yeah, because it's always like crocodile tears, like crying when you don't. Yeah, like, like fake, fake tears. You don't mean it. Yeah. Yeah. So, like faking being upset about something. I didn't know that they ate. No. That they cried while they ate. I mean, and like, we've got that in common. Yeah, same. Just, you know, crying into their. <laughs> Cheerios or whatever. Medios. Yeah. No. Edward William Pritchard was born on December 6th, 1825 in South Sea, Hampshire, making him the first of our square milers to actually be English. Yeah. Not doing the English any favours. <laughs> no, this guy definitely not. <laughs> I mean, the English don't do the English any favours, so... I mean, he was born into a naval family. His father was a captain in the Royal Navy and he had several relatives who had served as well. As such, he was expected to follow in his family's footsteps and become a Navy man. But at the age of 15, he began working as an apprentice to a surgeon in Portsmouth and then reportedly attended King's College London to study medicine in 1843. However... King's College denied ever having an Edward Pritchard in attendance. His supposed qualifications were reported to the medical directory by Pritchard himself. And here we see a pattern of lies beginning to emerge. Yep. Not off to a great start. Not so much. Also, just like, I love that, like, the gall just to tell everyone... Oh, yeah. I, I studied medicine at, at this, like, super-duper well-known place. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's not like saying, like, putting on your CV that you were, like, a coordinator when really you were just, like, an assistant An intern or something. Or something. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It, it's not like that. That is, like... That's, like... That is li literally people's life in your hands. Yeah. No shit. <sighs> um... So he was admitted to the Court of Examiners of the College of Surgeons on May 29th, uh, 1845, and was also appointed as an assistant surgeon in the Royal Navy, again with sort of dubious training. Um, so he served at sea on several ships, including the HMS Victory, HMS Collingwood, HMS Calypso, HMS Asia and the HMS Hecate. Um, when the HMS Hecate was docked in Portsmouth in 1850, 
he met Miss Mary Jane Taylor at an officer's ball. Mary Jane Taylor was from Edinburgh and was uh, staying with her uncle, who was a retired naval surgeon. The uncle immediately approved of Pritchard, as did Mary Jane's mother and father, and the two were married in autumn of 1850. Um, now, Pritchard couldn't afford to, quote, buy himself out of the Navy, as uh, uh, the sources that I read put it. So I guess that was a thing you could do back then. Um, um, and probably now. Yeah, I've heard of it before. I don't know a lot about the military, to be honest. Yeah. But yeah, I've heard of that, like, you have, you're supposed to serve X amount of time. And if you want to leave early, you have to buy yourself out. I don't think it's as much of a thing anymore. now. Yeah. Um, but it may be. I don't know. Yeah. So, but yeah, definitely heard of it before. He couldn't afford to do that, poor lad. And um, he continued to serve on the HMS Hecate while Mary Jane stayed with her parents in Edinburgh. However, the elder Taylors decided that their son-in-law should really be residing on dry land. You know, th the marriage depends on it. Um, and so they very kindly set up a doctor's practice for him in hunt would you like me to yeah yeah to give you my yorkshire expertise hum and bee hum and bee that's not how i would have said yeah. it <laughs> no there's an it n is not in there how yeah <laughs> yeah yeah no hum and bee hum and bee okay so i set up a doctor's practice for him in hum and bee in yorkshire um Pritchard and Mary Jane settled there in 1851, and they started their family. They had five children by 1860, uh, two boys and three girls. So in Humminby, Dr. Pritchard earned himself quite the reputation. He was described, after his trial, by the Sheffield Telegraph as, quote, fluent, plausible, amorous, politely impu impudent. Yeah. Impudent? Impudent going to pretend I know what that word means and singularly untruthful <laughs> they went on to say that his veracity became so notorious that in his attempt to deceive others he succeeded only in deceiving himself Ew, they're not holding back no not at all <laughs> he became well known for having affairs with his female patients and generally lying about nearly everything typical block but his dalliances and deceit didn't reduce Mr. and Mrs. Taylor's opinion of him. It should have. It really, really should have. But by all accounts, his uh, in-laws absolutely adored this man. Um, but yes, the, the reasons why seem mysterious to me. So, Yeah. Uh, he became an MD by way of purchasing a diploma in absentia from the University of Erlangen. Erlangen? I'm not sure, but yeah, something like that. In 1857 and in 1858 became a licentiate of the Society of Apothecaries of London. I am glad these words did not make it into our modern vernacular. I know, right? <laughs> 
Uh, with his newly acquired credentials, he sold his practice in Humanby for £400, which would have been about £49,000 today, and joined his wife in Edinburgh. Mary Jane had been staying with her parents because she hadn't been feeling well. Soon after, Mr. Taylor suggested Dr. Pritchard should set up shop in Glasgow. After all, the city was booming. Second city of the empire and all that bullshit. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he and the family moved to Berkeley Street in Glasgow. Yep. But wouldn't you know it, the fine medical professionals in Glasgow were suspicious of Dr. Pritchard. <laughs> Go figure. Um, and I can't imagine why. I know, like, it's not like buying your your medical degree from somewhere is like wrong or sketchy or anything no of course not obviously um uh, so nobody in town would recommend him for the faculty of physicians and surgeons um nor would they recommend him for several other medical societies in the city um He applied to be the chair of surgery at the Andersonian College in 1860, but was turned down because many people who saw his, quote, glowing testimonies from well-known English doctors thought that these recommendations were probably forgeries. Also, like, I know this is, what, the 1850s, 1860s? Yeah. Um, But if you... You know, if you have that kind of well-known doctor status, it'd be pretty easy to to follow up. To check. Yeah. Yeah. No shit. You know. <laughs> like, I mean, yeah, okay, it'd take a few weeks, like, waiting for the postal service, but... And also, like, it's not so. like, you know, every other person on the block was a, a surgeon or whatever in 1860. It was still a pretty new deal to have this sort of medical society Mm. built up and and glasgow and edinburgh were some of the you know sort of top places where that shit was happening so the fact that he thinks he can just waltz in and be like oh yeah guys like i've been around i i I know all the right people yeah it's like no dude no (laughs) so even though his professional life was struggling Pritchard uh, was heavily involved in Glasgow's social scene. Um, He was a member of the Glasgow Athenaeum and was even made a director. Now, from my research, the Glasgow Athenaeum was also the name of a theater later on, but this was not that. It was like a, you know, businessman's society group kind of thing, which I think doesn't exist anymore. So kind of the same original principle of like the Masons. Yeah, exactly. All um, these different like social groups supposedly built around a profession. Yeah. Um, uh, he was appointed as an examiner in physiology for the Society of Arts and gave countless lectures about his experiences in various parts of the world though um, he never managed to get the details quite right. Uh, For example, in one of his lectures, he bragged that he had hunted the Nubian lion in the prairies of North America. And just for the record, there ain't no lions in North America. Yeah, mountain lions, though. Oh, mountain lions. I knew, I knew. I knew that was going to come up. (laughs) (laughs) 
but no Nubian yeah, lions. Yeah, that's because the book I've just finished reading, they talk about mountain lions and they're in like Washington State. Oh, you, you know which book I'm on about. Yeah, I just started it last night. <laughs> it's so good. Oh, good. Yeah, it's it's been good so far. I'm in like a couple chapters in. Um, yeah. Yeah, you have to tell me when you finished it so we can talk about okay. it. Okay. Maybe we should start a book club. I know, right? I'm having trouble remembering what happened at the end of the last book because I read it a year ago. So I need to like... See, I only finished it a couple of months ago. Yeah. Um, Hi, everyone. We're talking about... um, What's the name? Hidden Bones by Vivian Bars. Yeah. (laughs) Great, great series. Great books. Yeah. What's the first one called? Forgotten Bones. Forgotten Bones. Yeah. Yeah. And now we got to wait like a year for the next one. I know. Very upset. Uh, but but she follows us on Instagram. So and we love your book. Yeah. And uh, yay. You know, yay. K- keep writing. You're awesome. <laughs> uh, yeah. So mountain, mountain lions, lions exist in America. Yes. Normal lions. Nubian so lions, much. which apparently refers to a now nearly extinct species of African lion. Not in North America. For sure. And just as he had in Yorkshire, Dr. Pritchard spent plenty of time associating with women who weren't his wife. Including his young servant, Mary McLeod. And in fact, Mary wasn't a woman at all. She was only 15 years old. Mm-hmm. But we'll get back to Mary in a bit. Just keep her in the back of your mind. Put a pin in it. Now, before Mary, there was Elizabeth McGurn. And Elizabeth McGurn was, more than likely, the human crocodile's first victim. The Pritchard family were living at number 11, Berkeley Terrace, on Berkeley Street, on May 6th. 1863, when a horrible fire broke out. At 3am, police officers stationed nearby noticed flames in the attic window and rang the doorbell. The door was opened by a fully dressed Dr. Pritchard, who told the officers he had been woken just a few minutes earlier when his sons alerted him to the smoke filling the house. Dude gets dressed quick. Yeah, right. After talking to the boys, Pritchard rushed up to the attic where the servants' quarters were. He called out for Elizabeth but received no reply. He told the officers that he had tried to enter the attic but it was so full of smoke and flames he was unable to get inside. The news of the fire was quickly relayed to Anderson Police Office and then to the Central Engine Station who sent firefighters to put out the flames. Uh, When they entered the attic flat, they found Elizabeth McGurn's charred body in her bed. Newspaper accounts at the time reported that McGurn had a habit of sleeping, of reading in bed, and perhaps she had fallen asleep before the gas jet had set her bed hangings alight. That's completely plausible. Yeah, you know, open open um, gas flames, dangerous. Yeah, I mean, yeah. They suggested she could have uh, suffocated from the smoke because if she hadn't suffocated, surely she would have made some effort to escape the inferno. But there were some serious inconsistencies with Pritchard's account of the fire. Uh, 
like, why did he answer the door fully dressed if he had only heard his son's calls minutes before the police rang the doorbell? And now, some other questions. Why was the family's other servant and the lady of the house, Mrs. Pritchard, why were they conveniently out of the house that night that the fire happened? And also, perhaps most importantly, why hadn't Elizabeth McGurn tried to escape? Yeah. Um, so I think that's the, that's the key one the, right there. The big question. Yeah. Because, um, yeah, you'd have to fall asleep and be suffocated by, or overcome by the, the smoke and the fumes and everything. Yeah. To not at least make some attempt. Yeah. And, like, some, some supposed that, like, well, some said, like, well, she may have suffocated from the smoke, but if the fire had started on her bed where she was lying, like, pretty quickly you'd react to that being like, oh, my God, the bed's on fire, even if you were asleep. Like, you'd, you know, mm. get up and go. Yeah, I guess, yeah. Um, hmm, wonder why she didn't. So... Mm. After the fire, there were rumblings around town that McGurn may have been pregnant, pointing the Pritchard. Nope. <laughs> pointing the pointing the Pritchard at finger. <laughs> pointing the finger at Pritchard. <sighs> um, and indeed, after his trial, many presumed that the only way Elizabeth McGurn would fail to escape the fire was if she had been dead or otherwise incapacitated before the fire started. Um police briefly investigated but nothing ever came of it and Pritchard remained a free man uh, he was also all too eager to claim insurance money on the house and listed several expensive pieces of jewelry on his claim form but no evidence of the jewels existence was ever found and the insurance company refused to pay as much as he was asking for uh, and Pritchard eventually settled for a relatively small sum um so, lovely little man, uh, Dr. Pritchard, was known to saunter along Glasgow city streets, uh, particularly Saki Hall Street, uh, our, our good old friend in the, the, the square mile here. Um, and he would hand out picture postcards of himself to people who passed him by. Oh, yeah. Because we all go and do that, don't Super we? Super normal. So... With that in mind, let's just stop for a moment here to discuss old Eddie's looks. They weren't great, and they certainly weren't the kind of looks you'd want to see on a picture postcard handed to you by a stranger on the street. Uh, <laughs> definitely not. Definitely not. Um, he was tall and thin, but stood sort of hunched over. He was balding, but had perfected the art of the comb-over if such a thing can really ever be perfected. Um, and he had a... That is a... Go ahead. I was just going to say, that is a very impressive beard, though. Well, yes. He had a massively bushy beard, but no mustache. So it was just like clean lip, Creepy. full beard. So not exactly a looker, not a guy I'd want handing me a picture of himself randomly on the street. No. And we'll include, we'll include pictures of the man. You can go see for yourself. It's, I, I, I judge anyone who has a beard but no mustache. Yeah. It's like one thing if it's like a small sort of like 
chin strap, Abraham Lincoln beard. Like maybe they can't grow a mustache, but like this guy could clearly grow any kind of facial hair he wanted. And even if he couldn't grow a mustache, he could like, you know, snip off a few bits of beard and just stick them on his lip. Well, if he did the comb over on his head, he could do the comb comb around for his lip. The comb (laughs) off for his lip. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway. Yeah. After the fire at Berkeley Street, which is just behind Glasgow's Mitchell Library, very fancy building, Mm. the Pritchard family moved to 22 Royal Crescent, which is very near to our last Square Mile Murder location, uh, which was Sandyford Place. And eventually the family bought an expensive home at 131 Socky Hall Street. They purchased the house in 1864 for £2,000, which would be about £256,000 today. But the good doctor didn't actually contribute any of his own money towards the property purchase. Why am I not surprised? Right. (laughs) Instead, his mother-in-law, Mrs. Taylor, gave him £500 and the rest was borrowed from a bank. If you couldn't already tell, Mrs. Taylor just loved Edward. She couldn't have thought more highly of the man. For some unknown reason. Uh But boy, she... Should she have been paying more attention? Yes, I think so. Uh Pritchard's medical practice was finally making money, but he somehow managed to spend it all and was overdrawn at two different banks. And his struggles extended into his marriage. His wife found him kissing young Mary MacLeod and the two began to fight. But that wasn't all. Mary MacLeod was pregnant. Yep. Being a doctor, Pritchard induced a miscarriage to solve that inconvenience. How sweet of him. Pritchard told Mary that if his wife died before he did, he would marry young Mary. What a sweet proposal. That's just like every girl's dream. Right? It's like, hey, if yeah. if my wife kicks the bucket, I'll totally marry you after I've gotten you pregnant and then forced you to have an abortion and also you're 15. Yeah. Great. I mean, why has... I mean, that's so much more romantic than all the proposals I've had this week. I know, right? It's like, I just... I just swoon at that. So, all of this sort of impregnating... Aborting, proposing, all that stuff happened in the second half of 1864. And in October 1864, Mary Jane Pritchard became very ill. Weird, right? Um, I did not see this coming. No No one could have, really. Um, Now, she had constant attacks of sickness and her doctorly husband said he thought she had drum roll please for all our Marianne Cotton fans gastric fever woo I sense who'd have thought it right I sense another bingo card opportunity here um oh that would be good yeah see so Yes, if you if you love gastric fever, go listen to our Marianne Cotton episode if you haven't already, because boy, is it full of stomach ailments. <laughs> <laughs> um, yep. I mean, 
whatever floats your boat, right? Yeah. And if yeah, if intestinal and stomach issues are what do it for you, we have you got it for you in space. Marianne, <laughs> she's right up your alley. Um, yeah. so just randomly and like coincidentally, uh, and totally unrelated to his wife's gastric fever, on November sixteenth, Doctor Pritchard bought an ounce of tartarized antimony. Uh, now I read that as tartanized. Ah, uh, like in plaid. I was like, <laughs> yeah, like okay, so it's Scottish in some it's, way. It's got it's like a little <laughs> bottle of poison, but it has a kilt on, so it's just like extra cute. Don't forget the sparring and the sparring. Yeah, probably a knife hidden there somewhere. It's all good. Kind of iron brew. Yep, 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 yep. Bagpipes. I mean, what else is you sparring for except carrying around iron brew? <laughs> Um, now, so that's tartanized antimony, tartarized antimony, on the other hand, is a poisonous and very deadly compound that when ingested or inhaled has similar symptoms to arsenic poisoning, our good old friend arsenic. Um, and so he bought an ounce, an ounce is a whole heck of a lot of antimony. Um, and on November 24th, Pritchard doubled down and purchased an ounce of tincture of, I think it's aconite. That's how I'm going to say it. I don't know if that's how most people say it. I think aconite, because the only other way to say it would be aconite. Yeah, which seems and wrong. And aconite sounds familiar. Yeah. So he bought an ounce of tinc- tinc- tincture, I have trouble with that word, tincture of aconite, which is also super duper poisonous. So that's cool. Okay. Um, yeah. and so he's, it's definitely clear about his intentions mm-hmm. at this point, mm-hmm. definitely wanting to poison something, Some, something, someone, maybe someone, his wife, maybe possibly. Um, oh, and by the way, he bought these poisons from Murdoch's and Curie's on Saki Hall street, the two shops where Madeline Smith had purchased her arsenic seven years earlier. Just bring it back These around. These shops are getting like a bad rap. I know. Poor, poor chemists are just trying to live their lives. Mrs. Pritchard went to stay with her parents in Edinburgh on November 26th and stayed there until Christmas. And wouldn't you know it, while she was there, her health greatly improved. Wonder Nothing why. really to do with the differences between Glasgow and Edinburgh. No. Uh, according to a letter sent to Dr. Pritchard from their daughter, Fanny... Uh, Mrs. Pritchard had gained weight and had more than her regular appetite back and was enjoying going out in Edinburgh. Two days after he received this joyous letter on December 8th, Pritchard bought another ounce of tincture of aconite. And this time he bought Fleming's tincture of aconite, which is six times stronger than the kind he had purchased previously. Just... Doubling down. Well, not even six, doubling, like six in. Six toppling down. Uh, the family had a happy Christmas, but Mrs. Pritchard's mysterious illness returned one week into 1865. Her condition was always worse after meals, and she was so ill that she rarely had the energy to eat with the rest of her family. Her doting husband would instead bring food and drinks up to her room. How kind. Mm-hmm. 
On February 1st, she had a serious attack and was found by the family's cook, Catherine Latimer, in her bedroom with intense stomach cramps. The next day, Dr. Pritchard wrote to his wife's cousin, Dr. James Cowan of Edinburgh, and asked his fellow doctor to come through to Glasgow to check on Mrs. Pritchard. So when Dr. Cowan arrived, he thought that the patient looked pretty okay, actually, um, but prescribed a mustard poultice, another favorite of the Victorian era, um, and small quantities of champagne and ice. What a prescription. Well, champagne on ice makes everyone feel better. Right? Like, that makes me feel real good, real fast. <laughs> um, so, being the loving husband that he was, Dr. Pritchard went out and bought some champagne. And also another ounce of antimony and another tincture of aconite. Just to cover his bases, you know? Um, so after the good doctor's purchase of some, some bubbly and poison, um, uh, the following day, Dr. Cowan suggested that Mrs. Pritchard's mother should come over from Edinburgh and take care of her daughter for a while. Uh, Mrs. Pritchard agreed and Dr. Cowan planned to fetch Mrs. Taylor from Edinburgh. But, uh, before she arrived, Mary Jane Pritchard had another violent attack. Catherine Latimer heard Miss, uh, Mrs. Pritchard screaming in pain upstairs. When she went into the room, she found Mrs. Pritchard in bed with her husband standing beside her. Mrs. Pritchard said she had taken chloroform and she was very agitated. She demanded to see another doctor, all while Dr. Pritchard tried to soothe her. Mary McLeod also heard Mrs. Pritchard's cries and she sent for Dr. Gardner, who was a professor of medicine at Glasgow University. Woot woot. Um, yeah, our uh, alma mater, yeah. <laughs> where we met. Yes. Uh, if it weren't for the University of Glasgow, this podcast would not exist. Exactly. Aren't you glad that it does? So when the doctor arrived, Dr. Pritchard told him that his wife had already been prescribed champagne and chloroform. Obviously. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just, can you imagine going into your GP's office today and they'd be like you know i know you have an upset stomach i think you should i'm just gonna write you a prescription of like a 20 pound bottle of champagne and some chloroform <laughs> have a nice day i mean i'm i'm good with the chloroform because i haven't slept well the last couple of nights <laughs> so yes dr pritchard informed this other doctor look she's already had her champagne and chloroform don't you worry about it um, and so when Dr. Gardner saw Mrs. Pritchard, he declared immediately that she was drunk. Obviously. Well, yeah, if you're giving someone champagne and chloroform. I'm pretty sure. In lieu of, like, actual medication. Yeah. Of course they're going to appear drunk. She's going to be drunk. Don't worry about it. Um, but also that she was clearly having some sort of, um, spasms. And was quite obviously very upset. She kept crying out and was shouting at her husband things like, Don't cry. If you cry, you are a hypocrite. You are all hypocrites. Probably in a Scottish accent. Um, 
Yeah, let's not do that. No, we're, we're not going to do that. Um, so Dr. Kerner told Dr. Pritchard to stop giving her chloroform and presumably stop giving her booze um, and that he would be back to check on her later in the day. Uh, he, in fact, told Dr. Pritchard to not give her any medicine at all. But, you know, the good doctor didn't say anything about aconite. So the bad doctor went and bought yet another ounce that very day. In between Dr. Gardner's visits. And on his second visit to the house, Gardner noticed that Mrs. Pritchard looked better. Though she was still having spasms in her hands. He prescribed no more medication and a diet of bread, milk and the occasional boiled egg. Yum. The next day, Mrs. Taylor arrived from Edinburgh. Uh, she quickly had the house in order and spent most of her time by her daughter's bedside. She sent young Mary McLeod to buy a bottle of Batley's sedative solution, which was a very respectable medication used in high society, even though it was actually opium. <laughs> so she sent Mary out to get the bottle of opium. I mean, yeah. It's, it's just wild, wasn't it, mm -hmm. this century? Just, just absolutely wild. Like there were no limits. Not only I, yeah. So she's been prescribed champagne and chloroform. <laughs> Her mother's. She's now on a diet of bread, milk, and occasional eggs. <laughs> and her mother is just sending out the servant girl to buy narcotics, opium. Cool. Yeah, it's fine. So. Mrs. Taylor had actually been taking Batley's uh, sedative solution for headaches and had become, how shall we put it, fond of the stuff. Mm -hmm. And she had even built up quite a tolerance and a bottle that once would have lasted her two or three months now only held over for two or three weeks. On Monday, February 13th, uh, Mary Jane wanted some tapioca. So one of her sons, Kenny, went to get some. He brought it back to the house and set it on the table right outside Dr. Pritchard's consulting room, which, wouldn't you know, had a locked cabinet that held enough poisonous substances to drop the entire city of Glasgow. Yeah. And Glasgow's got a high tolerance to everything. Yeah, precisely. The tapioca sat there for about 30 minutes before Catherine Latimer whipped some up in the kitchen. Uh, but by the time the tapioca reached Mary Jane, she had changed her mind and didn't want it anymore. So her dear old mum ate it instead. Could you believe that immediately after finishing the tapioca, Mrs. Taylor became violently ill? Like, what are the odds, right? Um, she thought she may have picked up the same mysterious ailment as her daughter. If only she knew how right she truly was. <laughs> I mean... And she had. Wow. It's just not what she thought it was. Exactly. Um, on February 18th, Dr. Pritchard bought yet another ounce of the extra strong Fleming's, Fleming's, Fleming's tincture of aconite. Um... <laughs> Now, at this point, uh, the cook, Catherine Latimer, had left the family's employ. Uh, a note in Dr. Pritchard's diary uh, said that she had left his service and his reason was that she was, quote, too old. 
Oh, that's nice. Isn't it just? Uh, but clearly could still whip, whip up a mean serving of tapioca. So yeah, I don't know what, what he was on about. Um, but uh, Latimer would still come around to the house now and then to check on the family, Mrs. Pritchard, and to take the younger children out for walks. So when so she, she came by on... She wasn't too well to do like all this unpaid emotional yeah. labor bullshit. Yeah, exactly. And to like... Too old to be a paid take, member of staff. Take your children out while you're, you know, busy poisoning everyone. Um, spoiler alert, I guess. <laughs> well, I think we've Probably established not. what he was up to. I think we've gotten there, yeah. Um, so when she came by on February 24th, she met Mrs. Taylor um, and thought that the woman was looking very ill. But uh, she chalked this up to the stress of caring for her daughter. Now... Mrs. Taylor, for her part, spent the day much like every other day and had dinner with the family at around 7 p.m. And at 9 p.m., she went upstairs to be with her daughter. Soon after that, the bell for Mrs. Pritchard's room sounded in the kitchen, and Mary McLeod went upstairs and found Mrs. Taylor trying to vomit. Uh, Mary brought up water and told Dr. Pritchard about his mother-in-law's illness, but he said he was with a patient and would be up later. What kind of doctor works till nine o'clock at night? I don't know. And also the book that this episode's largely based on is again, square mile of murder by Jack house. It seemed to make it clear that Dr. Pritchard's students were just like always in the house as well. And like kept stuff there like rifles and things. So there's okay. a lot going on in this house on Saki hall street. Like, confusing um so yeah he was busy he doesn't care about his mother-in-law puking upstairs um upon entering the room again mary found mrs taylor sitting unconscious in a chair with her head drooping onto her chest dr pritchard finally came upstairs and went to see mrs taylor uh the new cook mary patterson was right behind him and waited outside the door and through the closed door, she heard Mrs. Pritchard say, Mother, dear mother, can you not speak to me? Uh, the doctor opened the door and sent one of his students, again, who I guess was there. It's all a bit unclear. Um, to go get Dr. Patterson, but with one T, whereas Mary Patterson is spelled with two T's. So I, no relation. I think it's no relation. Um and Dr. Patterson lived just a few meters down Saki Hall Street. So when Mary Patterson entered the room, she found Mrs. Taylor not on the chair where younger Mary had found her. Everyone in all these stories have the same fucking names, and it's so frustrating. <laughs> um, Were they just like last time we had Jess and Jesse? Yeah, right. Just have the same. Everyone's the same. Yeah. Um, all Marys this week. Yes. Uh, so, yeah, Mrs. Taylor wasn't on the chair, but had been placed fully dressed into Mrs. Pritchard's bed. Uh, Mary Patterson checked Mrs. Taylor's forehead and noticed it was getting cold. Uh, Mrs. Pritchard was distraught. She asked her husband, Edward, can you do nothing yourself? And his reply was, no, what can I do for a dead woman? Can I recall life? 
That's fucking cold. That is harsh. No. Like, come on, man. So, Dr. James Patterson arrived, having been told that Mrs. Taylor was suffering from a case of apoplexy, which was a kind of catch-all term used to refer to any sudden death with a sudden loss of consciousness. It's a bit like consumption, kind of, isn't it? Yeah. Dr. Pritchard told Dr. Patterson that his mother-in-law had been writing a letter when she had suddenly taken ill. She had fallen off the chair and then been carried upstairs to Mrs. Pritchard's room. He even added that she and Mrs. Pritchard had been drinking beer with dinner and were both sick afterwards. So, just a bunch of bullshit. Yeah. Uh, when Dr. Patterson saw Mrs. Taylor, she was unconscious. Upon examination, he came to the conclusion that she was under the influence of opium or another powerful narcotic and was indeed dying. He managed to find a weak pulse, and stu- but stuck to his diagnosis of dying. <laughs> That's just, just like... Okay. I love that back then you could just diagnose someone as dying. Dying. Oh yeah, this woman. Well, she's got a still case alive, of dying. She's got a case of upcoming death. <laughs> Downstairs, uh, Doctor Pritchard told Patterson about Mrs. Taylor's fondness for Batley's sedative solution to explain away her rapid decline. He also described his wife's illness as gastric fever. Mikey bingo cards. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dr. Patterson felt he could do nothing else for the family and he went home at 11pm uh, Mary McLeod called on him again at 1am but he refused to see Mrs. Taylor again unless Dr. Pritchard requested his presence himself which he never did so Mary Patterson stood guard at the bedroom door all night and in the early hours of the morning Dr. Pritchard opened the door and said that Mrs. Taylor was gone He asked Mary Patterson to ready a spare bedroom downstairs for Mrs. Pritchard. Uh, His wife refused to leave her mother's side, insisting that she wasn't quite dead yet. Which is unclear if she wasn't quite dead yet, or if his wife just was upset, didn't want to leave. I mean, but it it could be either at this point. (laughs) Denial's not uncommon, is it? You know, in cases of of death of a loved one yeah um so he eventually managed to convince her to leave and once she was settled downstairs uh, mary patterson and the family washerwoman who had been called to the house uh, mrs nab tended to mrs taylor's body as they undressed her they found a half empty bottle of batley's Um, when dr pritchard saw the bottle he made a great show of crying good heavens has she taken this month much since Tuesday? In that exact voice? Yes, precisely that. Um, so Dr. Pritchard made a note in his diary of the events of February 24th and 25th, noting that Mrs. Taylor had been seized by vertigo and rigors, quickly becoming comatose, and that at 1 a.m. on the 25th, she had passed away, quote, calmly and peacefully. Uh, Now, it's more than likely these diary entries were written in case somebody ever 
happened to want to investigate this mysterious death, less for his own like personal reminiscences. Yeah. I mean, I always write in my diary every time someone I know gets sick. Yeah. Right. Obviously. Later that morning, Mr. Taylor came to Glasgow hearing the news of his wife's death. He called on Dr. Patterson and asked for her death certificate. Dr. Patterson was surprised that Dr. Pritchard hadn't told the widower that death certificates were never handed out to family, but sent directly to the registrar. Interesting. Uh On the next Wednesday, uh, Dr. Patterson ran into Dr. Pritchard on Socky Hall Street. And Dr. Croc (laughs) asked if he would look in on his wife while he attended Mrs. Taylor's funeral in Edinburgh. Dr. Patterson agreed. And when he visited her, he found her to be very ill. He asked her lots of questions about both her and her mother's ailments and prescribed some soothing drinks, easy to digest food and some sort of powder. Dr. Pritchard didn't just attend Mrs. Taylor's funeral. He also attended the reading of her will and learned that she had left two thirds of her estate, which is two and a half thousand pounds, to her daughter, Mrs. Pritchard. And today that would be worth around about £316,000. Soon after seeing Mrs. Pritchard, uh, Dr. Patterson received a form from the registrar asking for the cause of Mrs. Taylor's death. He sent it back blank, but attached a note that he said explained the circumstances of her death. The registrar, for his part, decided to destroy the note. Not one to leave things hanging for too long, Dr. Pritchard decided to fill out the death certificate all by himself. He listed Mrs. Taylor's primary cause of death as, quote, paralysis, duration 12 hours. And her secondary cause was, quote, apoplexy, duration one hour. He didn't seem to realise that apoplexy should always come before paralysis, not after. Once again, don't think this guy's a great doctor. Yeah, it's almost like he's going to throw that out there. Talking about, right? It's like it's wild. Um, so, following uh, Mrs. Taylor's death, life went on in the Pritchard household. Uh, Doctor Pritchard saw Doctor Patterson in early March and brought the happy news that his wife was feeling much better. Uh, he was so happy about her recovery, in fact, that he decided to buy a brooch on March seventh. For Mary McLeod. Oh, I'm so happy my wife isn't dead. I'm going to buy a brooch for my mistress. Yeah, obviously. Um, Now, on March 13th, he purchased just a small half ounce of Fleming's tincture of aconite, the extra strong version. I mean, you'd think Um, after all the money that the mother-in-law has left the family that he could go wild and buy himself like three ounces just buy buy yourself a bucket, you know? You're a doctor. You go in there with your metal pail and be like, uh, just fill her up with antimony and aconite and send me on my way. It wouldn't cause any issues, I don't think. Um, so that evening, he sent Mary McLeod upstairs with some cheese for his wife's dinner. Cheese is good. 
Um, we all love a bit of cheese. Everyone loves cheese. Uh, Mrs. Pritchard asked Mary to taste the cheese. And Mary noted uh, a strange burning sensation in her throat after eating it. That's not a good cheese. That's not a good cheese. Don't eat that Even cheese. like fiery Mexican um, cheese doesn't do that to you. It doesn't do that. No. Mary Patterson also ate a bit of cheese the next morning and ended up having to spend the rest of the day in bed. So again, not a good cheese somehow. Um, quite curious. Who is besmirching the cheese name? I know. Like, um, it literally says in all of my social media bios that I am a cheese enthusiast. And that is absolutely correct. I do love mm-hmm. a cheese of any, almost any variety. Um, but yeah, I this s- is not a cheese I would eat. I still think about the cheese plate I ate at your wedding. <laughs> I mean, I just still think about the food at your wedding, period. It was so good. <laughs> it was pretty good. So yes, bad cheese, but uh, there was good cheese at my wedding. Yeah. Um, so on Friday, March 17th, Mary Patterson heard Mrs. Pritchard's bell ring urgently twice. Now, she knew that Mary McLeod was home, and it was the young girl's job to answer bells, so she just ignored it. But it rang again, so Mary Patterson decided to check things out. Um, She wasn't sure exactly which bell had rung, so she checked at uh, Dr. Pritchard's consulting room first. But the door, despite being partially open, seemed to be blocked by something uh, from the inside and wouldn't budge. So she carried on upstairs. Uh, immediately after that, the consulting room door opened and out came Dr. Pritchard and right behind him was Mary McLeod. Now, so. why would they need to like wedge the door shut? I don't know. It's just strange, right? Mrs. Pritchard had apparently rang her bell because she was feeling lonely. Oh, to be an upper class woman in these days. <laughs> so her doting husband fixed her a drink. How sweet of him. Yeah. At around 5pm, the bell rang again. Mary McLeod went up and found Mrs. Pritchard outside of the bedroom on the landing, pointing at the floor and crying, There is my poor mother dead again. That's not good. Mary helped the raving woman back to her bed. And at around 8pm, Dr. Pritchard went to fetch Dr. Patterson. When he arrived, Dr. Patterson once again found Mrs. Pritchard looking downright horrible. He prescribed a simple sleeping solution of, I don't know how to say this, a type of wine. Ipecacunha? Ipecacunha? Some wine. Ipecacahuna, the fuck's sake. A solution of wine, five to ten drops of chlorodyne, and an ounce of cinnamon water. Ooh, that very important cinnamon mm-hmm. water. For flavour. Uh, Dr. Pritchard. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Dr. Pritchard needed the prescription repeated, which surprised Patterson, who assumed a fellow doctor would have all the ingredients on hand. Pritchard said he didn't keep any medicines in the house except chloroform and Batley's. 
eight. <laughs> so basically all he has are things to knock yeah. out his page. It's fine. And you know the cabinet full of poison in the very room they were standing in? Guess he just forgot about that. Yeah. Like probably just slipped his mind. Uh, after Dr. Patterson left, Dr. Pritchard went upstairs, got into bed with his wife. Mary McLeod slept on the sofa in the bedroom in case of emergency. That is weird. It's a bit incestuous, isn't it? Just like, hey, hey, my mistress, sleep on the sofa. Just in case my wife accidentally dies in the night. Yeah. At 1am, Mrs. Pritchard woke and moaned, Edward, don't sleep. I feel very faint. And Dr. Croc had Mary McLeod get a mustard poultice made by Mary Patterson. Uh, the poultice didn't make Mrs. Pritchard feel any better. Shocker. Hmm. So he asked young Mary to fetch another, fetch another one. I love that. Like, it didn't do anything but get me yes. another one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Clearly just need more and more. Yeah. Give me more mustard, please. Uh, downstairs, Mary Patterson heard the bell ring and went up to the bedroom. Inside, she saw the second must mustard poultice on the bed next to a very dead Mrs. Pritchard. Oops. That's not good. Um, yeah, that, uh, that mustard poultice really isn't working for anyone, is it? It's really not. Um, so... Dr. Pritchard told Mary Patterson to apply the poultice to his wife. And her reply was, quote, there's no use putting mustard on a dead body. I love Mary Patterson. <laughs> I mean, she is like your no bullshit Glasgow woman. Absolutely. Um, in, in, re in response, he asked, quote, is she dead? And her reply just as priceless as the last, was, Doctor, you should know that better than I. Because indeed, he should have. I mean, the only response better than that would have been no shit, Sherlock. Yeah, exactly. Um, so for his part, Dr. Pritchard insisted his wife had merely fainted and asked Mary McLeod to get some hot water. And Mary Patterson again pointed out the futility of just heating up a dead body. Um, at which point Dr. Pritchard burst into tears and cried out, come back, come back, my darling Mary Jane. Do not leave your dear Edward. This guy really did know how to put on a show. So he collected himself and went downstairs to write some letters as you do when your wife dies at 1am. You know, just casual. One of the letters he wrote was to the bank. So he wrote to Clydesdale Bank. Um, and the letter was a response to a notice saying that his account was overdrawn by over 131 pounds, which is about 16,500 pounds today. Oh, uh, not much then. No, nah, just a, like a little bit. Um, and he also took some time to write in his diary. On the page for March 18th, 1865, he wrote, Died here at 1 a.m. Mary Jane, my own beloved wife, aged 38 years. 
no torment surrounded her bedside, but like a calm, peaceful lamb of God passed many away. May God and Jesus, Holy Ghost, abbreviated GH period, um, may God and Jesus, Holy Ghost, one in three, welcome many. Prayer on prayer till mine be o'er everlasting love. Save us, Lord, for thy dear son. Wow. Yeah. Like, just wow. He's a lot. On, yeah. Just, let's just sit in that for a few seconds. And just... <laughs> On Monday, March 20th, he wrote up a death certificate, which had Mrs. Pritchard, uh, which said Mrs. Pritchard had died from gastric fever, duration two months, and arranged for her body to be taken to Edinburgh. That same day, the Procurator Fiscal in Glasgow received an anonymous letter dated Glasgow, 18th March, 1865. Now, we'll put a photo of this letter on our website so you can check it out. Because, frustratingly, it's very hard to read. And the book includes a photo of it, you know, Square Mile of Murder by Jack House. But doesn't actually transcribe it in the text. Yeah. Uh, so you can get all the words from the photo. If you can get them all, well done. You've done better than us. Uh, we spent many, many hours staring at it yesterday, trying mm -hmm. to trying desperately it. to figure it out. Oh my god! Yeah, I mean, I was just like wandering around my local B and M, staring at this picture. Like, what is this? What, what does this say? <laughs> um. So. This is the best that we can do. Yeah. Sir, Dr. Pritchard's mother-in-law died suddenly three weeks ago in his house on Socky Hall Street, Glasgow, under circumstances at least very suspicious. His wife died today, also suddenly and under circumstances equally suspicious. We think it right to bring your attention to the above as the proper form to take action in the matter and see justice done. Like, there are some, some words missing in there, but I just could not figure out what they were. So that's the gist. And I you think get the, you, you get the idea. You get the gist. Someone's grassing on him. Yeah. Uh, many thought the letter may have been written by Dr. Patterson, uh, but he denied it. But there were a few others connected to the case who had suspected foul play. Whoever tipped off the authorities certainly saw justice done because the procurator fiscal told the police and the police started investigating immediately. Edward Pritchard was none the wiser to the investigation and continued to flit about town telling all sorts of lies about his wife's death, including that she had died even though he had three different doctors examine her, which in his words caused, quote, a case of too many cooks spoiling the broth. You know what? I, I just really want a man to describe me as a broth. Right? So he was going around town saying that. Um, and this is what led up to him over his wife's open coffin in Edinburgh, where he kissed her lips and cried, quote, with great feeling, his crocodile tears. 
Um, he left his father-in-law's house and took the train back to Glasgow. When he got off the train at Queen Street Station, Superintendent McCall was waiting for him on the platform. And Dr. Edward Pritchard was arrested right there on suspicion of having caused the death of his wife. Um, now, upon hearing this news, most people thought it was crazy. Uh, even his wife's relatives said he surely had nothing to do with her unfortunate death. His friends visited him in prison, uh, where he was said to be calm. And he also made a declaration asserting his complete innocence. And poor young Mary McLeod was also arrested uh, on suspicion of having been involved in the whole thing. Uh, thankfully, she was released soon after. And on March 28th, Mrs. Pritchard's body was examined and found to be full of poisonous antimony. Uh, this led to the decision to exhume Mrs. Taylor, whose body also contained high amounts of antimony. Uh, after this discovery, Dr. Pritchard was asked to make a second statement, and again, he declared his innocence. Edward Pritchard was tried before three judges in Edinburgh, just as Madeleine Smith had been. And in fact, one of the judges, the Lord Justice Clark, Lord Inglis, uh, was the judge who pleaded to the jury to find Miss Smith not guilty at her trial. Oh. Interesting. The lead counsel for the Crown prosecution was Mr. Adam Gifford, who had also represented the Crown during Jesse McLaughlin's trial. And just to round out the old gang, uh, Mr. Rutherford Clark, Jesse McLaughlin's defence attorney, acted as Pritchard's lead defence counsel. So we've Just, got all three, all three yeah. cases so far tying nicely together. We do. We got, we got the old gang back together here. Now, the trial began on July 3rd and lasted for five days. Um, a contemporary newspaper account wrote of Pritchard at the trial, saying, His naturally handsome countenance and a certain plausibility of manner which characterized him favorably impressed spectators. This was strikingly illustrated by his bearing in court, particularly in the early stages of the trial. None who saw the intelligent, thoughtful, and mild-looking individual seated in the dock on the first morning of the eventful trial could be prepared for anything like the refined and consummate villainy and diabolic cruelty which each day brought to light until, when the whole murderous plot was laid bare, the assembled auditors saw before them a perfect fiend in human shape. I do like that. Perfect fiend in human, in human shape. shape. It's very like, it's just very poetic in a way and very yeah. illustrative, I think. Yeah. Um, now, according to these accounts, Pritchard's demeanor only changed after Mary McLeod reluctantly confessed to their relationship aka his victimization of a teenage girl so his mild expression began to give way to something altogether more villainous during her testimony uh, the crown had a pretty airtight case the only thing they couldn't prove conclusively was how the poison had been administered to mrs pritchard and mrs taylor um, the circumstantial and medical evidence though largely spoke for itself and the best the defense could do was to try to blame mary mcleod for the murders Dr. Patterson testified at the trial and got some serious scolding about not alerting someone of his suspicions that Mrs. Pritchard was being poisoned. 
He insisted that medical etiquette made it impossible for him to make his suspicions known. Bullshit. Yeah. Uh, Lord Inglis further condemned this during his summation, saying, Dr. Patterson said that he is under the decided impression when he saw Mrs. Patterson that somebody was practicing upon her with poison. He thought it consistent with his professional duty to keep that opinion to himself. There is a rule of life and a consideration that is higher than these, and that is the duty that every right-minded man owes to his neighbour to prevent the destruction of human life in this world. And in that duty, I cannot but say, Dr. Patterson failed. I'm totally with him on this. Yeah, I mean, that is like very damning. Um, It is. And very eloquent. Mm -hmm. I totally agree. And I I do. I think that's a a very eloquent way to put it. Like every person has a duty to prevent the destruction of human life. The jury deliberated for only an hour. (laughs) See, I think olden timey trials were much more efficient. Oh, yeah. Nowadays, people are like, deliberating for like weeks on end like yeah just, just get in and get it done yeah uh, when they came back the foreman announced they had unanimously found the prisoner guilty on both charges lord inglis sentenced dr edward pritchard to death he was taken back to prison in glasgow and spent 21 days between his sentencing and execution becoming excessively religious of course as everyone does when they're about to die <laughs> He met with his own Episcopalian minister, as well as ministers from other denominations. So he's like covering all yeah. bases. Just like, come one, come all, bring your gods, let them absolve me. Yeah. Uh, to his own minister, he offered his first confession and said he had murdered his wife with an overdose of chloroform and that Mary McLeod had also been there and had known about it. Uh, everyone found this confession to be bullshit. Yeah. Um, he made a second confession on July 11th that, that detailed the origins of his relationship with Mary McLeod. He wrote that he believed his wife knew of their affair, for lack of a better word. Um, he also said that Mrs. Taylor caught him and Mary together in the consulting room the day before she died but that she definitely certainly died of an overdose of Batley's solution of opium and that the aconite that had been found in her Batley's bottle had been placed there by the good doctor after her death on purpose. Uh, He said he did this, you know, to make sure that anyone investigating the death would find that her death was simply caused by misadventure and nothing more. Obviously. I love that word, misadventure. I know. (laughs) Misadventure is when you go skydiving and your parachute doesn't open. Yeah. It's not when your son-in-law poisons you. (laughs) But I just love his logics. Like, oh no, like I put the poison in, in her bottle so that you all would know that she died of an overdose. Obviously. Yeah. A bit backwards there. Um, He once again confessed to giving his wife chloroform, but he said it was at her own request. 
You see, she was so sleep deprived after her mother's death uh, that she just she needed something to help her sleep. Um, but during the administration of said chloroform, he succumbed to her his inner demons and knowingly gave his wife an overdose with Mary McLeod in the room, of course. Um, he said he of had, course. of course, he said he had been living in quote a state of madness since his connection with Mary McLeod began, and that he repented for his crimes. The same day, Dr. James Patterson had a long letter published in the Glasgow Herald after suffering from criticism after the trial. In the newspaper, he said that the fault lay with the registrar who had destroyed his letter. He said the letter had read, I'm surprised that I'm called on to certify the cause of death in this case. I only saw the person for a few minutes, a very short period before her death. She seemed to be under some narcotic, but Dr. Pritchard, who was present from the first moment of the illness until death occurred, and which happened in his own house, may certify the cause. The death was certainly sudden, unexpected, and to me, mysterious. In the rest of his letter to the Herald, Patterson insisted that sending this letter to the registrar had been an attempt to scare Pritchard off of poisoning his wife. He also pointed out that several other doctors had failed to notice Mrs. Pritchard was being slowly poisoned. Uh, Dr. Pritchard didn't care at all about Patterson's assertions. He was busy drafting a third confession in his cell. This, uh, this one a week before he was set to hang. This time he admitted to both murders, but said he had been driven to kill due to an onset of, quote, terrible madness and the ingestion of ardent spirits, which is, you know, whiskey. <laughs> I just hate it when I'm, I've got the terrible madness and I've been drinking, and so I just commit two murders. So all of his confessions did him little good because his execution went ahead on July 18th, 1865. Um, the night before, a crowd began to gather at Jail Square, and by half past seven, between 80,000 and 100,000 people had come to see this guy hang. So the deadly procession arrived at around 8 a.m., and Edward William Pritchard, the human crocodile, was, quote, launched into eternity, as later put by the Edinburgh Current, at 10 past 8 in the morning. Um, so Dr. Edward Pritchard was the last person to be publicly executed in Scotland. Um, and even though his involvement with Elizabeth McGurn's fiery death was never proven, she is, generally be, she is generally considered to be his first victim. And with three victims, that makes Dr. Edward Pritchard a serial killer over 20 years before Jack the Ripper terrorized London and embodied the term. And that is the tale of the dastardly doctor, the human crocodile, Dr. Edward William Pritchard, and Glasgow's third square mile of murder case. Wow. I am finding this really interesting as we do, as we cover sort of a lot of the old Victorian cases. There's like loads of cases of serial killers, like by the mm -hmm. textbook definition, mm -hmm. you know, 
three victims on three separate occasions with a cooling off period in between. Mm -hmm. But that all, you know, happened before, like long before Jack the Ripper, but they're never they're never recognized highlighted. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, he is, you know, the first. A lot like and like Marianne Cotton was eighteen thirties through She was uh Marianne Cotton was apprehended uh in eighteen seventy three. Ah, uh, yeah. So that's still like over ten years before. Hmm. I was gonna say Amelia hmm. uh, Dyer, but she's also she died she's in, in eighteen ninety six. So she's like the same period of time. Yeah, but she started killing long before yeah Jack the Ripper ever. So, but it is interesting that like clearly, just from like the handful of victorian cases that we've covered there's more than has been generally publicized but going back to dr croc <laughs> yeah right it just oh. he does seem like the most reptilian of creatures doesn't he like mm. and and everything that i've read describes him as just the most like lowly unfeeling diabolical kind of man like he sounds like a sociopath um oh absolutely like a hundred percent so i think that's interesting mm -hmm. as well and like the way that he sort of went through life just constantly spouting out these elaborate lies and like he he'd get caught in them but he'd still like he'd be fine you know which is really interesting yeah. to me it's it's very interesting, um, but like clearly not an empathetic fellow. Oh no, definitely not. <laughs> and like you said, just the like the way he you know uh, placed the the Batley's bottle <laughs> on his dead mother-in-law's body to make sure that authorities found her death you know to be misadventure. Yeah. Like, like, well, and like the, the diary entries, like he was definitely, this was clearly highly meditated, like organized murders. Like he had things yeah. planned out. He, he was trying, he was trying to create forensic countermeasures, I guess, technically you could say. Um, yeah. Like leaving red herrings to throw investigators off of his uh case clearly wasn't great at it considering the you know <laughs> barrels of fucking poison he had in the house and that was then yeah. in his victims but still like yeah and i think by this point the arsenic act would have been passed as well i think yeah because madeline smith had to sign a book so yeah so um, there's like a huge paper trail for him buying all this poison yeah exactly and the the what I did read um, in Jack House's book was like he he could get away with a little more because he was a doctor and it wouldn't be unheard of for them to be buying this kind of stuff, but still like yeah. super large quantities. Yeah, check your doctor's credentials. <laughs> yeah, right. It's the only um, advice we can give you this week. Check your doctor's credentials. Um, check your cheese for poisons. Yep. 
don't marry a fucking fake doctor, liar, creepo. No. Yeah. Also, you know, I was on about the cheese at your wedding. Mm. The blue cheese that was on that cheese platter was called Blue Murder. Oh, see? We're just on brand all the time. Yeah. So we just want to take a minute to say thank you to everyone who has come along with us on this journey so far. We are 30 episodes in and it just keeps getting better. Yeah. As you can tell by all the cheese chat. Yes. (laughs) Uh, We love hearing your thoughts, your reactions to these cases we cover. If you want to chime in about good old Dr. Croc, uh, come and find us on social media. Uh, Square Mile of Murder the podcast. We have a Facebook group. We have an Instagram page. Come and talk to us. Tell us what you think. Because there's a lot going on in this case. Yeah. Super interesting. And if you have a moment, we would really appreciate it. If you could give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast app you listen to us on. Um, Because it really does help us reach more people. We are greedy. We like five stars. (laughs) And if you want to go a step further, you can become a patron of the show over at patreon.com forward slash square mile of murder. There's lots of fun stuff happening over there, including regular episodes a day early, bonus episodes every month. So go check it out. Yeah. And yeah. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Uh, Here's to 30 more episodes. Yeah. Thanks so much. See you uh, next week. Yeah, we'll hope to see you for the next 30. Bye. Bye.